he's one of the most complex people that you can ever research in history and has such a great story of never giving up. No matter what life handed him, a lot of tragedy, he just kept on keeping on. And that's a story for us all. Junctures from Liverpool, England. The Beatles have held this title for eight years. My model of business is the Beatles. You know, they were four very talented guys. Welcome back to the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. I'm your host, Jack Lawless. This week, we are honoring the life and legacy of John Lennon. This December 8th makes 42 years without John. And although some of us, like myself, are too young to remember a world with John physically in it, Our world today is still comprised of and inspired by things he's influenced, jokes he's told, and songs that he sang. Joining the podcast this week to celebrate John's life and talk about his favorite songs, TV shows, and his legacy is John Lennon expert Jude Sutherland Kessler. Jude is currently writing a nine-volume series on the life of John Lennon. Her books are meticulously researched and as accurate as they could possibly get. The current installment of the series focuses on John's life in the year 1965, and you can order it on her website, which is linked in the podcast description. So, let's get started. Jude, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I am doing great. Thank you very, very much for inviting me on. I've been listening to your podcast and I'm so excited to be here. Really thrilled. Thank you. So I'm excited to ask you about your work and how you present the Beatles story and John Lennon story so well. But I want to know, how did you first get into the Beatles music? Well, it was December of 1963. So pre-Ed Sullivan. Um, I went to school one morning, I was nine years old, and got off the school bus, and three of my friends were standing there, like, waiting, and they had a 45 record, so it must have been December of 63, it must have been Swan, VJ, you know, I I can't imagine, I know Capital, I want to hold your hand, by the end of the month, Capital is, you know, on board, but I'm guessing that was probably Swan or VJ. And they hold it up to me and they say, okay, these are the Beatles. And you've got to fall in love with one of them. You've got to recess, but you got to, everybody's in love with one of them. You got to pick one. And I'm like, what? First of all, I was a very, I was the kind of kid that loved going to the library before school to file books. I adored filing books. I was this studious little kind of nerdy girl. And I got to fall in love and I've got to do it before recess with people I've never, I've never seen them. I've never heard them talk. I've never heard them sing. I don't know anything about them, but that's the mandate. So I took the 45 sleeve and I put it, you know, on my desk and at recess, I said, okay, I picked this guy right here. And they said, that's George Harrison. Oh, I could just tell they were like so disappointed So I said, could I just possibly take the record home with me? Can I listen to it? Can I think about this overnight? And they're like, yeah, yeah. So being the researching person I was, I started calling their sisters, their older sisters. And I would say, tell me about these Beatles. And I found out that John had formed the band and he was considered the leader Beatle. Now, at that point, I didn't know he was also an author and wrote poetry and prose. I didn't know any of that, but I knew he'd formed the band and he was the leader. So I went back the next day and said, I've changed my mind. I picked John Lennon. And they're like, we knew that's who you pick. Of course that's who you pick. And, you know, they were thrilled. So with never having heard them, never having, you know, I I was tasked with falling in love with the Beatles. So I, I don't really remember how I felt about the music the first time that I heard it. I mean, all of us were swept into this tidal wave of Beatlemania, but I had to fall in love with one of them before I ever even heard them sing. You know what I'm saying? (laughs) Well, I think you picked the right one. 
Oh yeah, I do too. <laughs> and you know, of course, when you hear the story and you hear that he is this little boy that so many people should have been there for, and they were not, and that he is spending his entire career believing that half of what he says is meaningless, but he says it just to reach Julia, his mother, Julia, and to try to assuage the pain of her not being able to keep him and bring him up and have him as her son. You know, up until very, very recently, Jack, all of us thought that Julia just gave him away. We didn't know until Julia Baird found out from her aunt that Pop Stanley, John's grandfather, and Mimi, her older sister, had joined forces to take John away from Julia because she was living in sin, living with John Dykins without being married to him, and that she was flighty and she was going out at night or play her banjo in the uh, pubs on Smithdown Road. And, and they just didn't consider her to be a fit mother. And they had called social services on her. And social services had come out and said, John's got to have a proper bed of his own. You can't go off and leave him in the evenings. He's crying and the neighbors hear him crying. You've got to, if you leave, you have to have a babysitter. So they engineered this separation of mother and son. And we didn't know that. And John didn't know that. So all of his life, he's trying to prove that he's smart enough and he's good enough and he's talented enough that she should have loved him. And so what, what more touching story is there than that? that? That's the ultimate story. Judy, you're one of the leading experts on the life of John Lennon, and you just know so much about him. Can you walk us through how you made the decision to write a nine-volume series on the life of John Lennon? Sure. I um, I started writing the first book, which I thought was going to be one book. I was going to do just one book, sort of like Irving Stone does his books on the one he's done on Darwin and on Hawaii. And it was going to be the comprehensive John Lennon book. And I got 800 pages into it. And we were in December of 1961 when Brian offers them that loose managerial agreement. And John says, you know, right, manager, then Brian. And I was at 800 pages and, and we're only in December of 1961. So I said, okay, this isn't going to work. So I'm going to be, I'm going to do three books. I'm going to divide it into three books, sort of the way that Mark, Mark Lewison is doing it. And then I realized when I got into volume two, which is 1961-63, so it's just two years, I realized that that was 700 pages and we were only at 63. So I thought, okay, that didn't go work either. So what am I going to do? I'm going to make it a nine volume for John's number nine series and tell his story. Now, Jack, is that going to work? <laughs> I'm in book five. And even though I've divided it into two parts, I'm kind of cheating. We're in 1965. Wow. So I don't know. I'm just going to keep plodding ahead. This is what I tell myself when I'm running and I'm really tired and I want to quit. Just keep putting one foot in front of the other. And that's what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep going and do as much as I can do. And hopefully it will be nine volumes, but it might be 10. Oh, that is awesome. And so... How are you conducting most of your research for this series? Well, you can see behind me, um, I have probably, I don't know, around 500 books about John Lennon and the Beatles. And in all of the cabinets behind me, I have periodicals dating back from the 1960s until today. I have old cassette tapes that have interviews on them. I have eight tracks. I have DVDs. and it, just a wealth, a wealth of material. And of course, now when I started this, we didn't have the internet. Now, if I want to write, let's say about the uh, 1965 Portland concert, uh, all I do is call it up on the internet. I can watch it. I can watch the press conference. I can read the press conference that's been transcribed. Uh, I can go to newspaper articles from the day. I can, you know, get interviews with people who were there, numerous interviews with people who were there that day. And on top of that, all through the 1990s, I went to Liverpool seven times 
and would do like three interviews a day, one in the morning, one in the evening, in the afternoon, one in the evening with the people who knew the Beatles, Beatles family, people John went to Quarry Bank Grammar with, people he went to Liverpool College of Art with, Alan Williams, of course, their first manager, and Bob Wooler, the DJ from the Cavern Club, and Helen Anderson, who went to college with John, and on and on and on and on. Tons of interviews, and I'm still doing tons of interviews. Um, because you've got to get with people who were there and what they saw and what they said and what they heard. But you and I are just talking about the fact that Morgan Llewellyn says history is slippery. And it's so true because people who were there at the same event give completely different accounts of the event. So it's important to talk to more than one person who was there. You got to talk to many people who were there. And then maybe, 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 maybe you will get the true story. But even then, it's hard. So I'm using every single avenue that I can to get to the true story. And what's been the most challenging part of this? Okay, here it is. This is done. Da, 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 da. <laughs> it is trying to find the thread of truth because everybody reports it differently. And I shared with you before we started recording that right now I'm working on the chapter where the Beatles go to meet Elvis at Perugia Way. And fortunately, one of my dear friends is Ivor Davis, who is one of two journalists who got to go with the Beatles into Elvis's home. Chris Hutchins of New Musical Express and Ivor Davis of the Daily Express were the two reporters that Brian selected to go in. They could not take notes. They could not take photographs. That was Colonel Parker, Parker's stipulation that there would be no press. But Ivor does remember quite clearly the things that happened that day. I just want to share with you, here are the discrepancies in just that chapter alone, okay? Everybody says the Beatles were staying at a house on Benedict Canyon, although some of the Beatles authors get it confused with the house that they were staying in in 1964, and they put those two stories together. Some people say the house was in Hollywood. Some say North Hollywood. Some say Beverly Hills. On the 23rd of August, which is the first day they're there, Alf Bicknell says, and he's the chauffeur, John chauffeur, who was invited to go along as a bodyguard on the 1965 North American tour. He says, I have a vague recollection of girls jumping from a helicopter into the pool to get to meet the Beatles. But on another page, he says, the girls flew over, but just shouted at the Beatles. In two pages, he's contradicting himself. And Schulteis says the girls only shouted down their hellos. So which, which one happened? Did they jump or did they just fly over and wave and scream? I don't know. Elvis at the door. Okay, just get this. This is Elvis. Did Elvis come to the front door? Francis Kenny in the making of John Lennon said, Elvis did not come to the front door. He was sitting in front of the TV and made the Beatles come to him. Uh, Peter Brown in The Love You Make says Elvis answered the front door. Craig Brown in 150 Glimpses of the Beatles said Elvis was not, did not open the door, but he was standing in the circular foyer behind the door. Barry Miles, who's a friend of the Beatles, said Elvis not only was so excited to see the Beatles, he not only was at the door, he was standing on the front step waiting to welcome them to his home. And Priscilla says, of course, Elvis didn't open the door. He wouldn't have done that. Jerry Schilling opened the front door and then the Beatles were escorted in to meet the king. Okay, come on. How can I write that? You know, I mean, there's so many different fans. Were there fans there that night? Ivor Davis, who was there, says there were tons of fans. Priscilla says there were tons of fans. But almost every other report says there were no fans because it's secret. Even Elvis's quote, you know, the most people say that he said to the Beatles when nobody would talk and they were just sit, sitting there staring at him. He says, Elvis said, if you damn guys are just going to sit and stare at me, then I'm going to bed. But Priscilla says, he said something like, well, if you gentlemen, not you damn guys, if you gentlemen are not going to talk, 
then I guess I'll just do my own thing, which softens it a little bit. I don't know. If you're not there, you don't know what actually happened. And you and I were laughing about the fact that the Beatles all report what Priscilla was wearing. Paul McCartney says it was a purple gingham dress with a purple bow in her hair. George says it was a glittery full-length gown with a tiara. That's the most difficult thing. It is very hard to write this story as a narrative because I can't just report the facts. I have to make it pop off the page and come alive. And in order to do that, I have to have all the details. And man, when people don't agree, how are you going to do that? It's very difficult. Wow. So in the case of the Beatles meeting Elvis, do you personally have one account that you believe more than the others? I'm doing sort of a uh, concordance um, graph for everything that happened. And I'm looking across the board to see what is being repeated, how reliable the sources are. I mean, like, for example, there are people who immediately want to throw anything that Albert Goldman says out because Albert's attitude was not always the best. He always he always saw things in sort of a dark light. But Albert's pretty good at getting his details right. Whereas Peter Brown, who was a good friend of the Beatles, generally gets his his, uh, facts a little bit skewed. He's one of the ones that confuses the 1964 tour and 65 because the next day he has the Beatles go to an ice cream party at Alan Livingston's house. And that was 1964. So You have to get to know each one of these biographers, how credible they are, were they there, where did they get their information from? Did they get it from a primary source or did they repeat it from another book? It is a slow, time-consuming process and you just have to get a feel for it. When I first started out, I didn't know this was a problem and I kind of believed everybody. And then gradually over the last 35 years, I've gotten a little bit cynical because I'm I'm not sure anybody knows the truth or remembers the truth. And, you know, I'm starting to be very, it's tough. It's really a tough thing. You have to spend a lot of time researching before you ever start to write the chapter. Is there a phase of John Lennon's life that's more unclear than the others? Wow. Great question. Um, I think really John John is such a private person and he will lie to you when he wants to protect himself. For example, it's only love, which is clearly about his his failing marriage and how he and Cynthia are starting to fight every night. But just the sight of her makes nighttime bright, very bright. He's pouring out his heart about how much he loves her, but how they are really not getting along. And because that reveals the inner John. He tells you, oh, it's that song is terrible. I hate it. It's just garbage. It's rubbish. Anytime John says a song is rubbish, pay very careful attention to it because it means he has revealed his, his true self. He's very protective. He's very guarded. Um, I don't know that anyone ever really got close enough to know John except for people like Stu, who definitely knew him inside and out. Cynthia, he he is very careful to keep himself closed off from the public. And I guess I would, if I have to answer the one thing that I think is most misunderstood about him, I would say it's his struggle for faith because, you know, as a little boy, he was really, really bad in church. He stole the grapes off the harvest altar. He drew caricatures of the people in the choir and the minister and he stole money out of the collection play. He was a bad kid, but he had things going on that would have made anybody bad. I mean, if you if you're you've lost your mother and your father, and you're living with your aunt and uncle, and your aunt isn't very sweet to you, she's all rules and regulation and decorum. You might not be such a sweet little kid. You might be up to some mischief. So the minister calls and says, "John can't come back to church anymore. But we're done with him. He's like 11." And furthermore, you can't come back to church anymore. You and your husband can't come back to church. You have to find another church. Well, John didn't mind so much that he was thrown away, but he was very, very wounded that his aunt and uncle were punished 
along with him. It really embittered him on organized religion. And But throughout his life, he keeps searching. He keeps searching and searching and searching for faith. And when he pours his heart out to Maureen Cleave about his search for faith and how does a beetle live, and he talks about, you know, Christianity and the disciples being very thick and how can they not know that Jesus was Jesus and all that other stuff that he pours his heart out about. She puts it in the article. It doesn't, no one in England cares a thing about it. It doesn't send a a ripple onto the ocean. But then when it's lifted and put into date book and it becomes this bigger than Jesus quote, it, it appears that John is hates religion, hates faith, hates Christianity. And to this day, to this day, I went to speak to a Rotary Club in Louisiana about three years ago. And when people found out I was speaking on John Lennon, nine people got up and walked out of the room. Little do they know that John continued his search for faith throughout his life. And it was something that was very important to him. And it was something that at the very end of his life, he reconnected with again. So I don't think that part of his life, I think that part of his life is pushed to the side. And people think he's this mean, surly, cynical person, which he really wasn't. So he was a complex person, as you know. Right. Yeah. Now, if you had an interview with John Lennon in which you were only able to ask him one question, do you have anything you want to ask him after reading all of this information about his life? Um, I think I would ask him about his relationship with Brian because very clearly John loved Brian. Um, I wouldn't say in the same way that he loved Stu. Um, Stu was his soulmate. He was, Stu replaced Julia after Julia was killed by a drunk driver. And for people who don't know Julia, John's mother, um, he, Stu became his, his best friend, his bedrock, his soulmate. But once he lost Stu, he and Brian were extremely close, but because John got teased about going on the trip to Spain with Brian and everybody picked on him about it. I mean, they went on the trip in May and from their return in mid-May through Paul's birthday in mid-June, everybody is like, oh, the Spanish honeymoon, nudge, nudge, wink, wink. And oh yeah, how was it, John? They would not leave him alone until finally, you know, at Paul's birthday party, he had had enough of it and smacked Bob Wooler for, you know, teasing him about it. After that, he minimizes his relationship with Brian. He doesn't talk about it. He hides his love away. He doesn't act like he cares about Brian. He's snarky and cynical to him in public. But if you go back to um, Cynthia and John's honeymoon, which is in September, um, they go to Paris. They're there four days. They go to Montmartre. They go up the Eiffel Tower. They go shopping. They do all these wonderful things. And on the fourth day of their honeymoon, Brian comes to Paris. And Cynthia stops reporting about the honeymoon. You, She doesn't say anything about any day after that. And you know why I think that is? Why is that? He went home. She went home. She had a brand, she had a little baby who's only six months old. She and John had had four glorious days in Paris together. But I think John stayed and Brian came over and they spent another week there together But Cynthia doesn't say why. She just says, my very brief honeymoon. But John stays for another week. He never says anything about it because he doesn't want to get teased again. And he pushed that part of his life out. And people never knew how much he really cared about Brian. So I I would love to ask him, you know, come on. No one will tease you about this. Tell us about your relationship with Brian. And I think it was significant. It mattered to him, but he doesn't, he doesn't act that way. What do you think it was about Brian specifically that drew John's attention so much? Um, John was always searching for father figures. In fact, you remember he says on many occasions that Bob Wooler, he introduces Bob Wooler as this is me dad. 
They take Bob Wooler with them when they go to meet Brian the first time, and he introduces Bob Wooler as his dad. He, by the time that John meets Freddie, uh, when they are making a hard day's night, uh, John is called down to the NIMS office, and Freddie is there. Brian has set up a meeting between the two of them. At that point, John has been fatherless since he was four and a half years old, but he was always looking to someone to guide him and lead him and give him that father stability. And Brian, even though he's only like four years older than the Beatles, is very savvy, very wise, calm, encouraging. He is that father figure John's been searching for. And not only that, but John knows. He he loves him and will put John's good in front of anyone else's that he's, he says to, to Mimi, Brian says to Mimi, I'll take care of all the Beatles, but John will always be my top priority. Well, when you meet someone that you are their top priority, they are going to take care of you above all else. You can't help but love that person. I mean, you know, they're, they're in your corner. They have your back. So I think that's part of it. And he's looking for dad and Brian you know, you remember the reaction when they found out he was dead, you know, we're done. We're done. You know, we're, there's no, no more good that's coming our way because we're now just floating without any guidance. So, I mean, I don't know. What do you think? What do you think? Ah, uh, you know, I just, I think that John was always trying to fill the void of his parents since his parents left him at such an early age, I think with each one of his most important relationships in his life, he just wanted to make sure that person is not going to leave him. So like with Paul, with Cynthia, with Yoko, I just think he just did not want to be abandoned. I, and I think that um, rings true for his relationship with Brian too. Yeah, Cynthia said that he used to ask her all the time, you're not going to leave me, are you? Wow. He, the whole world thinks that John Lennon had every success and had everything he wanted, and yet he's saying constantly, you're not going to leave me, are you? That's all you need to know. Yeah, that's right. You know, and then every time that someone makes a snarky comment in a press release, and they blame it on John, they're... Three times in the in 1964 on the North American tour, I've incidents in, I think it's in volume four, should have should have known better, where George makes a snarky comment. And they're funny. I mean, they're funny. Like, you know, they're things that they're like, how long do you think you'll last? And George will come back with something real snappy, like, well, you're fat and ugly. How long do you think you'll last? You know, <laughs> John always gets blamed for it. And it's this kid that feels unloved anyway. The little boy inside of him already feels unloved. And now everybody gets mad at him anytime that a snarky comment is said. It's always John Lennon, you know? So yeah, he's always looking for someone to, to be in his corner. What do you think is the biggest misconception about John Lennon? That's that's it. That's mm. it. That he's That he's cynical. You know, you see all these things, John Lennon, and these bitter, and he was really, I mean, he would, like if he met you, he would try to say something insulting to get rid of you because then if it did, if he didn't get rid of you and you, you hung in there, then you must like him for him. Um, you know, when he met Larry Kane for the very first time, I'm sure you know this story. He, he says to Larry, why are you dressed like a fag ass man? Who says that, you know? And Larry came back and said, well, at least I don't dress like you do in those shiny shoes. And because Larry, you know, came right back at him, they got to be super close friends. John respected him and they got to be really close and he opened up to him. And what does he want to talk about? He wants to talk about how much he misses his wife while he's on tour. He's calling Cynthia every night to talk to her. He wants to talk about how his heart was broken by the John F. Kennedy assassination. And why did a young man like that have to get killed at such an early age? When you get past that barrier, there is a super vulnerable person on the inside. And I don't think most people see, see past that. 
Do you think that there's been a change in the narrative of the Beatles since the dawn of the internet and sites like Reddit and Twitter and Instagram? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's been a change in the Beatles narrative. Just period. Because as time goes along, what I studied in college was historiography and how history changes and morphs and develops and the reasons why it does that. And sometimes it's very basic. Sometimes there's someone who wants to be included in a story. And so they insert themselves into the story. And you and I were just talking a few minutes ago about Alf Bicknell's Beatles Diary, in which he says early in the visit to Los Angeles, I think that there was a tape of the Beatles jamming with Elvis, but I've never seen it. And I don't know if it exists. And then one page later, he says, I recorded the tape of the Beatles jamming with Elvis. That's how history morphs. People want to be in the story. And I don't think that people do it maliciously. I think that after they tell themselves, we believe our own stories. The more we tell them, the more we believe our own stories. And so you go from saying, oh, I think I might have been there to I was there. In fact, I'm the one that recorded the tape, you know, and you watch how stories change over the years. One of the biggest stories I can think of is Pete Best will tell you that Neil Aspinall absolutely was not in the room when Brian let him go. Um, Pete was by himself, that Neil was waiting for him downstairs, just outside the door. And when he walked out and said, they've let me go. Um, Neil said, well, I'm going to quit too. That's it. I'm, I'm washing my hands of them. And Pete said, don't do that. They're going to be famous. You need to continue to work for them, you know, because, you know, Pete and, and Neil are best friends. And not only that, but Neil is in a, a relationship with Mona and he's going to stand by Pete. He says, don't do that. They're, they're going places. You need to stay which was great advice because Neil became one of the Beatles' closest friends ever and a trusted associate. And it was a great thing. Now, the narrative has changed to say that Neil was in the room. And Neil's not there to say that he wasn't. But, uh, you know, it just, it, it, if you go back to the beginning, Pete says no. But you watch how these stories change. And it, it's kind of sad because we can't stop them from changing. We can't stop myth from sneaking into the story. It will. That's just the way it is. Right. And why is it so important to you to want to get the record straight on this? Ah, I guess I just don't want it to be what it wasn't. You know, that's a it's a great question because you know, why is that one little detail so important? Why do I care? Why don't we just say he was in the room? We, I want people to believe the story itself is good enough without changing it. The story itself is amazing enough. It is wow enough. Why do we need to add to it? Let's just tell it the way it really, really was. And for me, that's been a difficult task because you're reading this John Lennon series as if you're reading a story. And I can't have them do things that they didn't do it, or eat things they didn't eat or wear clothes they didn't wear. Or, you know, it's got to be exactly what happened. And it, that is a very hard job, especially when people disagree. I had a guy write to me and he said, Okay, in the 1964 Montreal visit, you had the Beatles eating chicken, fried chicken, and French fries. And I know the guy that delivered the food. And he says they had hamburgers. And so I said, okay, well, let me call Chuck Gunderson because Chuck, you know, wrote the amazing double volume series, Some Fun Tonight, the backstage story about the Beatles, how the Beatles rocked America, the historic tours of 1964 through 1966, which I'm pretty sure is the longest title in the history of books. So I said, Chuck, this guy writes me from Canada and says that his friend delivered the food 
and that he said they had hamburgers and not chicken. And I'm wrong. And he goes, Jude, I talked to the the man who produced the whole thing and who was backstage and who ordered the food and it was chicken. Okay, are we seriously fighting? I mean, Chuck and I weren't fighting, but are we seriously splitting hairs over hamburgers or chicken? Yes, because we want to keep the story. It's good enough without embellishment. You know, I know that seems ridiculous, but there it is. Well, yeah, I mean, but it's increasingly important because now with the internet and these social media websites, history gets erased every day. History gets rewritten every day. And that's why I think the work that you're doing, it's so meticulous, but it's so important. And it's really admirable. I mean, you just need to have this if you want a preserved version of accurate history. Right. Because if you start to stretch it, it just keeps going. You know, it just keeps expanding. And, And we want the real story. We don't want it to be something that it wasn't. And the Beatles were famous for taking advantage of that. I mean, when they leave the Indra and they're going to the Kaiser Keller and they're standing waiting for the van to come pick them up with all their gear on the sidewalk, they say, let's say that the little old lady, the nun upstairs got us kicked out because we were too loud and noisy. And they're laughing about it. It's in Pete Best's book. I mean, look it up. It's in his book. And they, so they start spinning that story and you wouldn't believe all the people that have repeated it. But the truth is the only little old lady that lived around the Indra was deaf. So she didn't have them kicked out. They were promoted because they got better and better and better. And Kashmir moved them to the Kaiser Keller, which was a better place. They didn't get kicked out because of the little old lady. So they were famous for doing that as well. There are so many little stories and anecdotes like that in the Beatles' history. Do you have a favorite one that you've come across during your research? Oh, let me think. What's a favorite one? I mean, you've got to go with the whole Paulist dead controversy because it's still going on. And people are violent about it. Um, I was on a late night talk show, um, gosh, two years ago, and the host asked me what I thought about the Paul is Dead controversy. I said, I really don't want to get into that. First of all, I'm not a Paul expert. And second of all, I haven't researched it well enough to give you an opinion one way or the other. And he said, can you just tell me, do you or do you not believe it's true? Unfortunately, I said what I thought. I got so many emails. You are an idiot. Da, 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 da. People are so mad about it. And on, I'm talking on both sides of the aisle. And so, you know, and the Beatles were part of that. They fed into it. Um, I, and it's still going on. Uh, there's Bob Wilson, who has uh, Tomorrow Never Knows podcast, is doing a book about it right now. And he's had all sorts of people, including the man that says he started the Paul is Dead um, controversy, chime in on the story. So maybe once that book comes out, we'll know, we'll get to the bottom of it. I don't know if we ever will or not, but I mean, what it was that 1967, 68, and it's still going. (laughs) Do you think John knew about that one too? I think they all knew about it. Oh, really? Yeah. Yeah, I think they all knew about it. I mean, I don't think they planned the crossing on Abbey Road to be the undertaker and the preacher and the grave digger. And I don't think they planned that the way people say they did. But I think they were well aware of the fact that it was going on. They they knew everything. Um, Janet Mitchell has that new book out, My Ticket to Ride, about how she, at age 16, um, got on a plane, one-way ticket to London, didn't tell her family she was going, and left to go meet the Beatles. And she was gone for 20-some-odd days at, before they finally caught up with her. And the Beatles knew about it. I mean, they knew that this girl had run away to England and was trying to get in touch with them. So they were pretty aware of what was going on. John read three newspapers every single day. And he, they were, John was very aware of 
um, the media, what the media had to say. In fact, if there was a bad review, um, if he was at home, Dot Jarlett, the housekeeper, would try to throw the newspapers away or that one before John would get up because he read so many and he kept up with it. And she knew that it would just upset him no end. So, mm. yeah, I think they knew. <laughs> I do. <laughs> so for those of us who want to get to know John as a person, Jude, can you tell us a little bit about John's favorite things in life, like his favorite movies, his favorite songs, anything along the lines of that? Yeah, he loved Michael Caine and The Ipcris File when it was one of his very favorite movies. And it's interesting because I think anyway, Michael Caine really resembles John. Um, if you look at Michael Caine in, in Victory, the soccer movie that he did with Sylvester Stallone is amazing resemblance to John. And he has that very dry wit that John had, but he loved Michael Caine. He loved his humor. They got to be good friends. And of course, of, in the 1960s, Michael Caine was the preeminent star in the 1960s. He loved all kinds of music. I just listened um, last night to an interview that he did with Tom Snyder on Tonight in 1975. And he's talking about this new form of music that's just come out that he loves, that has, has evolved from ska. And it's reggae. And he's talking about, oh, this great new form of music, reggae, and how it's just, oh, it's so wonderful. But he loved, he loved almost all music except jazz. He utterly despised jazz. And Stu kind of liked jazz, and he would always give him a hard time about it, saying it just meanders everywhere. There's no purpose to it. It has no beginning and no end. And, you know, he hated jazz. But everything else, I mean, love country and Western. As you know, Beatles for Sale was a total homage to country and Western music. And John even tried to write a country and Western song. And I don't want to spoil the party, so I'll go. Uh, all the Beatles love country and Western. I think John's very favorite thing, well, it's a, it's a toss-up. He loved to write, loved to write. And he was constantly writing. He would keep um, in his suit coat, he would always keep blank paper on the right-hand inner pocket and papers that he'd written on on the left side. So while he's waiting around or flying on a plane or whatever, he's constantly scribbling. And he would capture things that people said and use those later on. He'd hear things that people said, which almost all writers do. You know, keep a notebook and you're constantly writing. He kept all those papers in the left-hand side of his coat. But what he loved as much as writing is reading. They say, and I don't know, this is the stuff of legend. Mimi said this. Is this true? I don't know. But she said by the time that he was eight, he had read the collected works of Balzac. I mean, that's pretty highbrow for an eight-year-old. He was a constant, voracious reader. He read all through the North American tours. He would, the others would be talking and visiting and he would go in the back, hunker down with a book and he was lost. So, um, you know, and those are just some, he loved cornflakes. He loved the sunroom in Kenwood, which was small and snug, like the sunroom was back in, on Men Love Avenue and Mendips. Um, the thing that John didn't love was whatever he was doing at the moment. When he was at home, he wished he were out on tour. And he was out on tour. He was homesick and wished he were back at home. But isn't that all of us? Don't we all do that? Yeah. We're always looking for the grass to be greener, you know? Um, he, he didn't live in the moment, that's for sure. But a very, um, very complex person, but with simple, simple loves. In fact, one time Kenneth also asked him, if you could do anything, would you continue writing books or would you continue singing songs? And without batting an eye, John said writing. I was writing before I became a Beatle. I was writing all my life. When he was a little boy, he wrote a book called Sport and Speed Illustrated by John W. Levin. Um, he, you know, you give John a tablet and a pen or a pencil, and he was a happy man. That simple needs. So I'm aware of two points in John's life, a low point and a high point. The low point I actually found out about through watching the documentary on Netflix 
about the making of the Imagine album. And Klaus Vormann is in an interview, and he's talking about during the filming of the Strawberry Fields Forever music video, him and John are off to the side, and John's just picking a bush. And Klaus asks him, why are you hurting the bush? And John says, I'm just really sad, Klaus, and I've never been this sad before in my life, or something along the lines of that. The high point that I'm familiar with is when John was making Double Fantasy. If you listen to the interviews during that time, he's extremely happy. He's so optimistic for this coming decade of the 1980s. So why do you think that change in demeanor was caused in John? What happened in those years? Um, well, it's caused so many things. Number one, John has left the house husband phase and he's back to writing again. Um, I don't know. Have you read Ken Womack's book, John Lennon, 1980? No, I haven't. Great, great book. It's not about 1980. It's about 1970 through 1980. You trace his growth through the 70s to end up, you know, in 1980. And you watch him go through this phase of almost shock after the end of the Beatles to a very activist phase when he's writing sometime in New York City and he's very, very active in politics into the lost weekend, into, which is not lost at all. I mean, that's Walls and Bridges and the rock and roll LP, which is a very productive time in his life. But then he comes back to New York and he goes almost into seclusion in the house husband phase. And then he comes out of it and he starts writing again and he's inspired and the songs, I mean, the beautiful boy and um, just that whole growth into what becomes double fantasy. He's thinking about going on tour again. He's already talking about making another LP. So um, he was moving ahead. He was moving forward. I think he really had found himself again after the shock of the breakup of the Beatles. And he was getting ready to move into what I would call John Lennon part three. Because part one is Beatles. Part two is the solo years where he's kind of struggling and coming to grips with himself. And he was getting ready to be part three. So what's your favorite John Lennon solo album? Oh, no doubt about it. And you'll never guess which one it is. Really? What's yours? I think my favorite is Mind Games or Double Fantasy. Okay. Well, sometime in New York City. Oh, really? <laughs> yes. I love it. I'll send you an article that I wrote on it. Um, I, I love his songs for Irish Freedom. I, Sunday Bloody Sunday, absolutely love it. I think it is, was courageous. He was banned by the BBC because he wrote it, but he didn't care because he believes so much in it. It's a powerful song. Luck of the Irish isn't quite as good. He tried, but it's not quite as good as Sunday Bloody Sunday. But again, a bold and courageous statement. Angela, a beautiful song. It was so ahead of its day. Had that song come out, had that LP come out last year, everybody would have been, oh, man, John and Yoko, they're so with it. They're for prison reform and the rights of women. And they would have been heralding how great it was because it came out in the early 70s. They're like, they're freakazoids. Uh, what is this about? This album is like, but he wanted it to be a front page newspaper reporting the events of the day. Attica State and prison reform. And there was so much that was worthy to listen to. And so much of it is earworm. I mean, don't put on Attica State if you don't want to hear it the rest of the night. It gets in your brain and it will not go away. Attica State, Attica State, we're all mates with Attica State. Like, no! So, um, yeah, I love it. Just love it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Que Pasa, New York is great, too. And I also heard reports that yeah. during the making of that album, John actually met up with Paul and they were both discussing this newspaper story about Sunday, Bloody Sunday. And that's when they decided to both write songs about Irish liberation. Do you know if that story is true? Yes. And of course, Paul, you know, too, is on the same wavelength and um, he he supports it as well. But um, and I think all of the three of the Beatles were. Um, Irish. In fact, George Harrison, when they go to Dublin in 1964 to perform there, George Harrison's 
mother is there and meets them at the airport because she's there visiting her family in Ireland. So, and John had already said that he, you know, he bought an island in Ireland and he took Yoko there and they were going to retire there and that he, he really worked to get recognized as an Irish artist. Uh, in McLeisett's um, Irish families and their origins, there was a part that said there's no person who has distinguished himself as an entertainer, as a songwriter and composer uh, from Ireland. And John had a copy of it. It's on Walls and Bridges. And he wrote, oh, yeah, what about John Lennon? And he wanted to be recognized as an Irish artist. So not at all surprising that he met with Paul about that. Yeah, I think a lot of John's solo music really does resemble Irish folk music, like the topics, um, the structure of the songs, the instruments used on them. Right. And Paul's, too. You yeah. hear it in a lot of their songs. So I've just seen a face. The Auntie Jen song had a lot of that Irish movement to it. I mean, you can hear it. If you start listening for that, you can really hear it in the early yeah. music. And I also heard from various sources that during the making of Venus and Mars, Paul actually invited John down to New Orleans to record with him. Is that true as well? Right. And they were going. It, the trip was planned. And right before they were supposed to go, Yoko said that John's numbers weren't right that day and it would be unlucky for him to go and they should cancel the trip. So they did. Wow. Yeah, it was scheduled. And the numerology thing also came up when the Beatles were signing the documents to dissolve the Beatles as a group. I think John sent a balloon instead of showing up in person. Yeah. And did not go, did not go in because she was saying, this is not a good time for you to travel. She does this a lot. Um, she will tell John, he would get up and she would say, you need to go on a 7,000 mile trip. And he would get in, the, get on a plane and go. I mean, he traveled the world by himself. Because she would say, you need to go here, you need to go there, and he'd do it. Was that part of his search for faith? Um, yes. And part of, and of course that goes on, because by the end of the 1970s, he is spending every single penny of his allotment on books about faith. And um, that was during the period that he watched Jesus of Nazareth, which was a miniseries in 1979, and starts going to missionaries and saying, Okay, I grew up in the Anglican Church, and I've watched this miniseries. It's had a profound effect on me. Um, Fred Seaman talks about this in his book. Uh, tell me something. You know, tell me more. Tell me more. And finally, one of them said to him, "Look, man, you're John Lennon. Why don't you go talk to, you know, what, top dogs? Why don't you go talk to Graham and?" See what Billy Graham has to say about it. You're John Lennon. And he does. And the, of course, as you know, the very last picture that we have of John in that New York City shirt, he's wearing his cross. And May Pang is actually reproducing those now and selling them on her jewelry site. So um, he was always searching for significance, always searching for meaning and always searching for faith. So Jude, which other Beatle would you write a nine volume series about? <laughs> None. <laughs> I when I finish this series, I am going to Ireland. I uh, I will I, if I stay on task, I will finish the series when I'm 83. And um, Angie McCartney wrote me yesterday, and she said, "Oh, you still have plenty of time to write more books after that because I didn't even write my first book until I was 89." And she's written three. She's even writing a new book. So she said, you have plenty of time to write other books. I said, oh, no. When I finish this, I am going to go to Ireland. I am going to sit in pubs. I'm going to sing songs. I'm going to hike. I'm going to enjoy the beauty of the world and just enjoy. Oh, uh, that sounds fantastic. So, Jude, what are you up to now? What's the next book that's coming out and when can we expect it? The next book will be uh, the end of 1965. Um, Shades of Life, I've got it right here, part, part one um, takes you from January of 1965 up to the day that the Beatles board the plane to leave for the 1965 North American tour. And you can see it's pretty thick and that only covers eight months, but that is the making of help and, um, and the soundtrack that accompanies it. The 
nomination for the MBE, the European tour to France, Italy, and Spain, John's second book of poetry and prose, Spaniard in the Works, the move from the attic where he and Cynthia and Julian are living in the attic of Kenwood down into the house proper and what it looked like and how they furnished it, the um, traveling all over the world, making help from the Bahamas to Austria to um, Salisbury Plain to Twickenham Studios. There's a lot that's going on. But part two, which is what I'm working on right now, picks up as they land in New York and they go to the Ed Sullivan show again and they're getting ready to play Shea Stadium. And what a whirlwind the 1965 tour was because they have Shea Stadium. They do two nights at the Hollywood Bowl, two great concerts at Comiskey Park or White Sox Park in Chicago. They almost get killed literally when they go to Houston because the fans are allowed to run onto the runway right at the approaching plane with those rotors going and then they climb on the plane and no one stops them and they're smoking cigarettes with that engine that hot gasoline everywhere the jet fuel um the Beatles have to be taken off with a catering cart that goes up 20 feet that they get on the catering cart and Brian, Mal, Neil all surround them like this to protect them. And the kids are throwing shoes, lipstick cases, mirrors, purses at them. And really, Al Ficknell got hit in the head and went like this and went backwards. And if Paul hadn't caught him, he would have died. He was going off the edge of that catering cart. Wow. That 65 tour was unbelievable, the stuff that happened on that 65 tour. And then they're going to come back and they're going to make Rubber Soul and they're going to go on the UK tour and do the Christmas record. And I mean, there's so much that will be in part two. And I am having a blast doing the research for it. Wow. I am so excited for that. And Jude, can you tell us about your podcast as well? Yes. Yes. I have a podcast with uh, my best friend, Lena Stagg, who does the Recipe Record series, which is a series of rock and roll cookbooks. So you have recipes that have rock and roll names like she said banana bread or, uh, you know, uh, I don't know. I can't remember all of them at the, off the top of my head. But she's great. They're funny. They're hilarious. And they're great recipes. And then she gives rock and roll history to go with each one of them. Well, we interview everybody in the Beatles family. We just talked with Julia Baird. We talked with Rogue Best, Chaz Newby, the Beatles' first bass player. Well, after Stu. Um, we try to, to really focus on the Beatles family and on Beatles authors that are making a difference. And we are getting ready to, um, the second, first week of October, on the 4th of October, we're interviewing one of the most exciting author, new authors on the stage right now. I, I know he'd love to be on your podcast as well. It's, um, Jay Bergen, who was John's attorney in the Morris Levy trial when Morris Levy tried to take John's raw recording of the rock and roll LP and make a bootleg, make roots and market it without John's permission. He didn't mix it. He did John's voice sounded terrible. There were errors in it. And he's going to release that John suited. And Jay was his attorney. And the story will knock your socks off. Wow. Because on trial, John has to explain why he did the songs the way he did and what the songs mean to him, Bebop Alula and Bring It On Home to Me and Slipping in a Slide. What do those songs mean to you? And he gives his testimony. Why did you put them in the order that you did? And he talks about how he produces records. The book is amazing. So we're getting ready to interview him on the fourth. And I'm so excited about it. That is awesome. And Jude, where can everyone find your books and your podcast? Okay. Um, she said, she said is the name of our podcast and it is on, we have a page on Facebook and on Insta. And um, I always have posted on my Jude Sutherland Kessler page on Facebook when we're having our next podcast. Um, my husband and I also do a webinar every other month on John Lennon called Focal Points. And if you go to my website, johnlennonseries.com, you can order the books. I sign them and date them. And my husband, who does all the cover work for the books, he drew this picture of John. 
signs them as well, and we will send them out to you personally. And you can sign up for the newsletter, which tells you when you get to see the next focal point. So we're busy bees around this house. Wow, that is very exciting, Jude. And I will leave all the links in the podcast description so the listeners can click on those links as they're listening. Thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a fascinating life. He, um, I think that he's one of the most complex people that you can ever research in history and has such a great story of never giving up. No matter what life handed him, a lot of tragedy, he just kept on keeping on. And that's a story for us all. Our life together is so precious together. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Here, There, and Everywhere podcast. If you're interested in reading more about John Lennon, check out all of Jude's book about his life. The links to those will be in the podcast description. If you'd like to hear more episodes in the future, don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and follow us at Beatles Earth on all social media. As always, I'll see you next week with a brand new episode. Took the time, no one's to blame, I know time flies so quickly.